Hey there, and welcome to the Smart and Simple Matters show with your host, Joel Zeslovsky. Can you imagine collaboration so tight that you share a farm, a kitchen, and a financial account with 60 other people who aren't even related to you? I know someone who can and does. This is episode number 121. Howdy, A. I'm so glad you're with me for another episode. You're so sweet to be so generous with your time and attention. I say that in a clever way, but I mean it. It's awesome that we are together again, or maybe for the first time. Either way, it's great. We're going to have some fun together. I know my intros lately have been snappy, but I just need to give a quick Heartfelt thanks to one person in particular who right now is making me say, sweet, sassy, molassy, you make me happy. Jennifer K., your recent email and material support put a big spring in my step. Let us make things more simple-friendly and multi-potentialite-friendly for your family, my family, and the whole dang world. If you'd also like to support me, this show, and our community, you can check out the various ways at joelzeslowski.com slash support. Well, over here in Edina, Minnesota, where I live, I've just done my part to co-create the South Cornelia Neighborhood Association, which may usher in a new era of communication, collaboration, and downright fun times with about 1,400 people who live in the same neighborhood as I do. And as I reflect on what we've done and why we've done it, I'm struck by how much closer we could be if some of us entered into a strategic or practical partnership with each other, kind of like what Maikwe Ludwig talks about in the conversation you're about to hear Now, I'm no stranger to talk about intentional communities, but I've never gone as deep as I did with Maikwe. We discussed how an intentional community she used to live in, Dancing Rabbit Eco Village. Happily uses 90% less resources than the average American. We riffed on how competing cultures and classes can mix in some really nifty ways. We covered four C's that make sustainability possible creativity, courage, compassion, and cooperation, how easy it can be to share four cars among 60 people, the economics, equality, and sustainability of income sharing in intentional communities, and even how she's experimenting with debt sharing in her newest community. If what we're about to discuss seems too hard or radical for your taste, it's cool. There will be snippets of ideas that you can use today to make our world a more equitable, responsible, and vibrant place. Flex your attention muscles for a bit, because here we go. My guest today is a fellow Midwesterner who has put down many figurative and literal roots 
inside and outside the Midwest of the United States. My Ikwe Ludwig is a cooperative culture pioneer and transition trainer grounded in two decades of living in intentional communities. Her latest book is Together Resilient, Building Community in the Age of Climate Disruption, which she wrote alongside her role as the executive director of Commonomics USA. She's also a founding member of the Solidarity Collective, a forming income sharing eco village in Laramie, Wyoming. Well, welcome, Maikwe. I am stoked to have you join me for a chat. <laughs> well, thanks, Joel. I appreciate the invitation. I say we start where I almost always start a conversation, something I call the seeds of awesomeness. I want to help people understand how you came to be the person you are today. Can you tell us something unique about your environment as a youth or maybe one or two experiences you had growing up that just had a really big impact on who you become? Yeah, when I, I think of the main things about my childhood that sort of formed who I am, there's two big things for me. One is that my dad is an ecologist. And my childhood was a little bit like a biology lab. I sort of followed him around to these islands in the Great Lakes. And some of these islands were ones that really had nothing but birds and snakes on them. And probably there hadn't been very many humans that I'm not blood related to whoever have stepped on these islands because my dad and the rest of my family were really into bird banding. And his thing was that he was doing toxic chemical effects research on colonial bird populations in the Great Lakes. And so I grew up um, being very steeped in sort of ecological awareness from a very young age and got to spend time in the kind of environment that is really truly the wilds and, uh, you know, weren't really human habitats at all. And that I think has um, has shaped a lot of who I am and a lot of what my basic commitments are in my life. I, you know, sustainability has been a main driver for me in my life, and I think that goes back to my dad and his dad before him and this sort of legacy of bird banding. So, um, so that's what's, one of the things. What's bird banding? Bird banding. Well, so, um, so the way that they track bird populations is that you. Um, you put a small silver band around one of the ankles of the bird and it's sized so that it won't hurt the bird if you do it right. Uh, and then when those birds are captured in other places or if somebody finds a dead bird somewhere, then you can track it down based on the band number. And so that's how we get all this um, ecological data about bird migrations is because people like my family spend a lot of time banding birds and um, and then reporting that information into this ginormous database uh, where we're tracking the movements of birds all over the world. Neato. Okay, thank you for clarifying. You were about yeah. to say there was a second thing. That... Yeah, and so, so the second thing is, um, I think has some tie into that, but is a little bit different. And that's that my uh, my parents come out of really different class backgrounds. You know, my dad's mom grew up next to the Fords on Gros Eel, which is like the most expensive neighborhood in Michigan. Um, and he was definitely the sort of downwardly mobile guy in terms of class background. And my mom's dad worked his way up from being a signalman on the railroad, you know, back when dudes used to stand there and like literally wave flags around to get the trains to come or stop. That was where my grandfather started. And he worked his way up to being the editor of the largest union newspaper in the country. And so my parents come from like super different backgrounds around like money and 
working class values and upper middle class values. And so my childhood was confusing in some ways because of that. But the the nugget that I took away from it that I think was the most interesting for me is that, um, you know, we were very middle class in terms of like we had lots of books as I was growing up. I was expected to get a college education, all that kind of stuff. Um, but then there was also this incredibly deep respect for like physical labor and the unions and like this whole other um, sort of realm of thinking and ways of relating to the world that are very class driven and class based. And so um, I've sort of come around in my own activism work to doing a lot around classism and around racism as well. But classism is sort of the one that feels like it has the biggest tie in to my childhood. And I and I have this really weird background. I mean, maybe it's not weird, but it's not um, easily classifiable. Oh, no pun intended, of course. No I'm pun intended. A little bit right? about <laughs> class. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I get it. You're right. It's cer- certainly atypical. You're the first person who I've met that has ever done bird banding before, which is why I needed to <laughs> say, what is that? Bird banding. Could have done a quick Google search, but I felt mm-hmm. you would do a better job of explaining it. So this, not necessarily class of cultures, but this mixed yet warm environment that you grew up in, I, I can already see based on the overview of your trajectory in terms of where you've come to be where you are. And we'll get into that in just a little bit. There's, I just want to back up for a moment because you said something that fascinated me and I wanted to see where you were at both maybe as a kid and where you think about it. Now you mentioned the wilds and Mm -hmm. like the truly wilds, the one that don't have the stamp of humanity on it too is being in a wild environment. Does that always mean an absence of humans or can we have a presence in an environment and still call it wild? Well, I think they're just different versions of the wilds. I mean, I think, you know, having, you know, hiking trails that go through like our, our national parks. I mean, I think there's like an amazing capacity to connect with the natural world when you're in those environments. And I think that's really, really, really valuable. And it's really different than, being in an environment where like literally no one, no humans have like sculpted it to the human eye or to the human sensibility and to like what we think of as valuable and what we think of as beautiful. And there's a kind of, um, I know there's kind of like a deep, amazing chaos that is, I think a little bit scary for like the modern human brain in some ways, because we're used to things that have been cultivated and sort of formed into what, you know, what we appreciate and what we enjoy. And there's a way that when you're in those environments that are less, that are not at all sculpted, that you just get a really different flavor for what the natural world is. It's like, there's no human gaze here um, you know, on these islands that I'm talking about that I grew up on as a child. And so I, I think they're both really valuable and I think they're both wilds, but I think they're different. Most people won't have any idea what it is that you experienced. So paint a picture for us or give us some kind of sensory experience, mm-hmm. this deep, amazing chaos. What is it in your head when you hear those three words? What do you see? What do you smell? Mm-hmm. What do you hear? What are the defining attributes of this place that you still enjoy on a regular basis? Yeah. Well, I mean, I can I can describe those islands. This is funny. Nobody's ever asked me to describe this before. So I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Um, so, you know, you, we would... So you'd spend a few hours in a boat, uh, a not very big boat, and um, you know, and you're out really in the middle of the Great Lakes where you can't really see 
uh, you can't really see the horizon or the, um, any land anywhere. And you, um, you know, and you're charting things with boat charts so that, um, so that you're sort of flying blind a little bit and you get to these islands. And so you come upon these islands and you put down the anchor and then you get in a, like a dinghy of some kind with your equipment that you need to be banding the birds and doing whatever else. And as you approach the island, um, I mean, there's like thousands of birds in the air and, most of the time, these would have been seagulls or cormorants or terns. And so lots of birds of the same kind. And they're all raising hell because they're being disturbed. You know, like there's this thing that they've never seen, most of them, <laughs> yeah. coming upon them. And so there's there's just this chaos in the sky. And there's thousands of birds everywhere. And, um, and what you see, you know, it's usually pretty rocky. Sometimes there were... Um, you know, sometimes there were trees and sometimes there weren't. I mean, some of them were really just like collections of rocks in the middle of nowhere in the Great Lakes. And, uh, and, and it smells like bird, you know, that's like the primary smell that you're going to get. And it smells like fish because that's what they eat and that's what they're regurgitating. And, um, and it's, you know, and it's in some ways it's like not at all friendly, um, but it's also incredibly beautiful and stark on these islands. And then the baby birds are just adorable. You know, we have all these pictures of us as kids, like holding these little balls of fluff with eyes and beaks that are, you know, these baby chicks. And, um, you know, and we would spend a couple hours on an island out here and, you know, and be collecting samples, collecting dead birds and all that kind of stuff. And so it's a very, um, it's very real and very non-manicured. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, that's yeah. that's good. I've got the smell. I've got the sound. <laughs> I've I've got the the hearing the the sight part of it too. Thank you for doing yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Uh, is there some place that you now visit? I mean, this was this was a while ago. This was decades mm-hmm. ago. Who knows whether these bird sanctuaries still exist? Whether the same types and species of birds are there? But where do you go in the world now, online or offline, where you get the same sense of awe, the same sense of primordial, this is pristine, we haven't messed this up yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, those islands are still there. And my dad and uncle are still banding birds regularly out on those islands. So they still exist. I've only been out once in the last decade, though, back to those islands. Um, for me, the the other part of my direct contact with the nature growing up was that we lived on a on a dirt road in a small town in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And there was just woods across the road. And so we would go and just hang out in the woods for hours and go hunting raspberries and that kind of stuff. And so for me, it's the, you know, getting into the deep woods is really important to me. And um, really anytime that I'm near a large body of water, there's something in my system that sort of relaxes and, um, and sort of opens up. And most recently we spent some time uh, at the, um, at the ocean with uh, my husband and his kids. And that, you know, just being near large bodies of water sort of does that same thing to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very human experience that you have mm-hmm. being by the this source of life other yes. than the sun and this huge body of water. Just something yeah. super comforting. I understand why people like living on the lake shore or mm-hmm. living on the ocean line or living on the side of a river. It It makes a lot of sense. As you go on and you leave home and you start on your own... Where, whether it's 
spiritually or physically, like where do you go next? What's the next major milestone on your path towards what you're doing right now as a cooperative culture pioneer and a transition trader? I want to hear more about that, but just a little bit more of the backstory in terms of mm-hmm. um, now and then. Can you help me with that? Yeah, sure. So, um, so after I graduated from high school, I uh, went to Carleton College in Minnesota for a couple of years, and um, and ended up leaving Carleton uh, mostly because I was spending a lot of time being an activist and not really giving my studies the attention that they were due. And I sort of thought, well, I'm going to like take a year off, and I'm going to kind of get this activism thing out of my system, um, which didn't work. <laughs> Um, I mostly, I ended up, you know, getting like professionalizing my activism more and, um, you know, which I've now sort of like backed away from that a little bit. Cause I think there's problematic things about that, but, um, but, you know, I went to college for a couple years at Carleton, took a couple years off and worked for nonprofits and then went back to Eastern Michigan university, got very involved with the LGBTQ movement, uh, got very involved with um, feminism and feminist spirituality during that chunk of time, and um, and then went back again to school after I got my bachelor's degree. I went back and spent a year in the creative writing program, the master's program at Eastern Michigan. And, um, and so one of my side loves is definitely writing poetry and, you know, connecting with other poets. Um, yeah, and after that, it was not too long before I ended up in my first intentional community, and that scene for me was an opportunity to actually be living out a lot of the values that I was talking about in my activism, that these communities that I discovered were really actually doing it instead of just theorizing about it and arguing about it. And so that's sort of a very rough and very high-level snapshot of sort of how I got from my childhood into the work that I'm doing now. Can you, for people who don't really know what that means, intentional community, Mm -hmm. can you just give us a brief definition the way that you see it? Yeah. So intentional communities are just groups of people who live together based on shared values or shared goals. So that's the really simple definition. Sometimes there are also family relations in a bigger environment. Like you could have a whole biological family and extended family over generations living in the same intentional community, right? Yeah, for sure. And there's definitely communities that um, that have multiple generations, you know, all living in the same community together. But it's um, it's more commonly more of a chosen family than a blood family. Right. So I, I think the defining attributes... Uh, some of the words that you use and that I use to collaboration, cooperation, consensus, mm-hmm. lots of other cool words that don't start with C. And <laughs> I, uh, there's a couple of words that go together, cooperative culture. So you describe yourself as a cooperative culture pioneer. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that we are in need of examining our some of our basic cultural suppositions right now. I mean, the the U.S. is a culture that is very individualistic. We're, in fact, the most individualistic culture in the world, Um, barely nosing out Australia for that particular prize, and uh, and are very much oriented toward materialism and oriented toward a kind of independence ethic that I think creates a lot of challenges for us psychologically because it's really hard to be uh, an independent operator and do all the things that the modern world requires of us that's very stressful. Uh, And so there's a whole 
package of stuff. And there's also the competitive stuff. You know, we're really taught uh, from a very young age how to be really excellent competitors. And often that's the whole motivation for people going to college is to be able to be a good competitor in the job market, um, not necessarily because we're following our passions. And so I think that whole cultural package is really problematic. And so what I'm the work that I do is primarily defining what cooperative culture is and then uh, helping people build the skills and sort of nudge us collectively toward something that is more at the cooperative end of the spectrum instead of the competitive and individualistic end of the spectrum. Yeah, and I can certainly say more about that, but that's the that's the gist of like the problem that I'm seeing and um, the sort of motivation behind doing the work that I do. Yeah, say more. Maybe say it through the lens of a recent TEDx talk that you put forth. I, mean, I know you mentioned that you just had two years at Carleton College, very near where I live right now mm-hmm. in southern Minnesota. Uh, and obviously, they they liked you. You left on good terms if they invited you back to do a TEDx talk on the right. Carleton campus. Uh, it was it was really appealing to me. And I have to admit, I'm certainly aligned with your way of thinking and your way of living, despite not actively doing some of the things that you're doing right now. Mm-hmm. I can definitely see myself getting more into it. But we've been talking about so many C's, words that start with C, and you have four C's in that TED Talk where you talk about what makes sustainability possible. And the last mm-hmm. one is cooperation, which we've been talking mm-hmm. about a little bit more. How about I'm not asking you to re-give the TED Talk for us because I'll link to it in the show notes. And I really, I encourage people to watch it. It was quite good and quite creative, which is the first C. Can you tell us creativity, courage, compassion, and cooperation? Maybe we can just do a little overview, a run-through of how you see each of them and how they play into sustainability. And we'll go a little bit deeper on one or all, depending on where you want to go. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so so I do start with creativity when I go through that section of the talk. And um, the thing is, we are in the process of needing to reinvent a whole lot of systems. You know, those are ecological systems, economic systems, social systems. And because we're in that invention stage, there's not like some like well-worn path that we can just follow. And um, so when I talk about creativity, I'm not necessarily talking about like artistic ability, which I think is how a lot of people think of that word. What I'm talking about is the ability to kind of just make it up and like figure out in, you know, a really like real, real time in space way, like what would actually be, um, inspiring, interesting, and useful that we could be doing, but hasn't really been done before. So there's a, um, a part of creativity where if you're going to actually be any kind of pioneer, you have to be, you have to get really comfortable with being creative, which also means sometimes failing and not having things go well. And that that's just part of the creative process. And then courage is closely linked to that because, you know, I think for a lot of people, if they get too far off the beaten path, people in their lives start getting nervous, you know, like, what are you doing over there? And like, this looks weird and that kind of stuff. And you really have to be able to, um, I mean, defend is maybe the wrong word, but, but sort of stand up for like, yes, I am doing this thing. And I understand that you don't understand it and that you're somebody who cares about me, but I am doing this anyway. And so there's really a, I think a tremendous amount of courage that it takes to be on that front edge of inventing new ways of living and new ways of being. So those two are paired really closely together for me. Um, compassion for me is, um, is also very much about like 
tangible things and isn't so much about some like warm, fuzzy feeling. Although I love that feeling when you're really in a sweetly compassionate state with someone. I love that um, sort of high that you can get spiritually from doing that work. And I'm actually talking about something that is more about concrete practices. So, um, so for instance, you know, in the U.S., we are the country that is the most responsible at this point for uh, the climate crisis that we're in. To me, what compassion really means is being able to dig really deep and go like, okay, if my practices are literally killing people on the other side of the world, I should be changing my practices. And that to me is a level of compassion, a sort of compassion and action that I think a lot of people never really go to that level with it. And that's the level that I'm encouraging people to really look at it um, with. Yeah, I just want to call out something real quick that stuck with me from your talk. You said something to the effect of, hey, don't don't pretend like your choices are ethically neutral. There's almost mm-hmm. always or always an impact of the choices that you're making on your friends, your family, the people all mm-hmm. the way across the world, the rest of the living world. Imagine yeah. that, like thinking about non-human entities and what your choices have on the rest of the, the living world too. That, right. that really stuck out for me as well. Yeah, great. Good. Thank you for reminding me that. That was a good phrase. <laughs> I like, wasn't thinking of it as I was just speaking. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think there's also a lot of perils. I mean, we'll get back to cooperation, which it sounds like is the one that you may, mostly want to focus on. But I do think that there's a parallel right now with, um, you know, there's a lot of conversations right now about white supremacy and really doing our work around racism. And to me, that's really similar in that sort of compassion zone of like, you know, I could just stay in my white bubble and not ever actually deal with the fact that I benefit from white supremacy to the detriment of other people. Um, but I think it's really important that we do that and that, you know, that compassion, again, is, is actually a living thing and a very tangible and material thing rather than just being, you know, that we talk nice to each other or that we listen to each other when we're upset. Like, that's great. That's really important. Um, but it's not really the depth that we need to be going to um, in terms of compassion right now. Um, yeah. Well, no, I, I don't have any prearranged areas for us to go down and explore. But let's go back, I think, to the intersection of creativity and courage. Mm-hmm. You were also talking about what are the concrete practices, the way that you can live your life that, that live these ideals, that live these things that we stand for. And I would love it because I'd be remiss if you didn't have the opportunity to at least talk about Dancing Rabbit Eco Village celebrating their 20-year anniversary soon. I, know. I understand. <laughs> I mean, well, first of all, uh, you can talk about what it is in general and how, where it started, how it started, but this is a courageous act to me. The thought mm. of starting this eco village, starting your own solar energy company, living off of less than 10% of the resources that the average American lives on. I mean, this is, for a lot of people, that's a full stop. Like, whoa, wait, what is going on here? <laughs> And and although I didn't have that strong of a, you got to be kidding me kind of reaction to it. Tell me about the, the courageous people and the super creative people who started Dancing Rabbit Mm -hmm. Eco Village. Yeah, there's some of my heroes. I, you know, I love the, the original Dancing Rabbit people were really, um, really good, really smart and really willing to, um, I guess, come from a place of humility about it. And so this is so, so if you want to picture this, so it was a group of um, mostly recent college graduates from Stanford, although not entirely, but that was the bulk of the original founders and, you know, smart as hell, um, 
really motivated um, folks who were coming from, you know, a certain degree of privilege in a lot of ways. I mean, economic privilege, certainly white privilege. And they didn't take what I think is a kind of stereotypical standard approach to things when like, you know, people come from that much privilege and they're young, you know, they didn't do the like, oh, well, we know everything kind of thing. What they did is they went out looking like deliberately seeking out mentors and wanting to really learn from other people who had been living in community for a long time. And then they wanted to take it in a direction that was, um, that was at that point, not that standard, which was like, let's try to figure out how full on we can do the sustainability thing, ecological sustainability thing. Um, and they were really remarkably humble about it, which I think was pretty extraordinary. And I think it's one of the reasons why Dancing Rabbit has been successful is that this is a group of people that have never been afraid to learn from other people. Uh, and so I think that's really positive. And um, so they came to Missouri 20 years ago this weekend, actually. Um, I'm headed back to Dancing Rabbit. I get on a train tonight and head back to Dancing Rabbit for the 20th year uh, reunion, which is very exciting. And, you know, and they, they bought a pig farm that didn't have pigs on it anymore and just started experimenting with natural building and um, cooperative eating and organic gardening and a whole bunch of different things. Um, one of the more radical things that they did from the beginning that Dancing Rabbit still does is that you can't own a personal vehicle and operate it when you're at Dancing Rabbit. Everybody uses a car co-op. And what that has done is it's pushed the community to have to really learn the skills of cooperation and um, and develop technologies around cooperation that um, that are pretty remarkable. And they're able to get by with four cars for about 60 people, which is way different than the standard U.S. ratio of cars to people. Um, you know, you, you lived there for a while, correct? I, I did. I was there for um, a little over eight years. How does the sharing and sign up process work for some kind of communal resource like four cars for 60 people? Mm -hmm. So there's a um, there's a three part system with the cars. One of them is that there's an online um, system where you can go in and say, I need a car on Tuesday at two o'clock going to Memphis, Missouri. Um, and then every Sunday, Dancing Rabbit has a, um, a meeting that's called the WIP, which is the weekend preview. And, um, and one of the things that happens there is that the, the car schedule that, um, the early signups that people had done online have been transferred to a piece of paper and, um, and we just sit around and figure out like, are there other car needs that are needing to happen at that same time? And do we need to juggle and share and figure out how to coordinate those things? And then that piece of paper hangs on the wall all week and people can sign up. Like if you realize on Monday that you need a car on Saturday, you can still sign up to get a car at that point. Um, so it's really a system that, that encourages people to be like, you know, talking about what their needs are in a really direct way. Um, not being attached to, I can do anything I want to do when I want to do it, which is sort of one of the things, the things that cars give us in the U S is that sense of freedom. Um, and also like, how can I cooperate with my neighbors and all of that is sort of built right into the system. So that's basically how the system works. Was income sharing a part or still is a part of dancing rabbit as well? There have been income sharing sub communities at Dancing Rabbit, but um, but the community as a whole is not income sharing. Okay, so for somebody who's thinking I'm not opening up my wallet and pooling all my money with people mm -hmm. who are not my immediate family, can you make the case 
to the skeptics who think, why in the world would, okay, I'll share a car with somebody. That's totally cool. But uh-huh. will I share my bank account and pool my money? Why would somebody want to get involved in a community where income sharing is a prominent a- aspect of it? Yeah. So I, so I got three answers to that. There's one, um, one that's just an economic answer, one that's about uh, oppression dynamics and when that's about sustainability. And so the economics of income sharing are that, you know, basically you can save a lot of money by doing things collectively. And when you share income, a lot of those collectivizing questions become kind of no brainers. Uh, like Dancing Rabbit is one of the only communities that I know that is not income sharing that does car sharing at the level that they do. Basically, every income sharing community that I know, like, why would you not share cars if you're sharing a bank account? You know, it just makes a ton of sense to do that. Why would you not be buying food cooperatively and therefore in bulk when you share a bank account with other people? Like it just becomes like a no brainer. Um, And that's so much cheaper. You know, when I was at Dancing Rabbit, I, before I lived at Dancing Rabbit, I was spending about $600 a month on a car during the eight years that I was at Dancing Rabbit. The biggest bill that I ever got for my car usage was like $120. So it's like, like, and most of the time it was more like 30 or $40. So it was like literally an order of magnitude, less expensive to have just as much mobility. Plus I had access to cars and a truck, which was way better than just a car. Sweet. Sweet. Yeah. What so about the second one you said, you mentioned oppression. Yeah. So, um, and there's a couple really direct ways that, um, that income sharing gives you a leverage on oppression dynamics. One is around gender. Um, so just about every income sharing community sees an hour of contribution as an hour of contribution. And it doesn't matter if that is managing a business or taking care of the children or cooking a meal or, you know, doing carpentry work, whatever it is that people are contributing is valued identically. And that really upsets a lot of our standard gender dynamics. You know, there's still a lot of work that is, you know, that women do much more frequently than men do. That's, you know, still considered women's work. Um, And that stuff is typically underpaid or unpaid. And in an income sharing community, you, you upset that dynamic pretty significantly. And um, the times that, so I lived in an income sharing community for two and a half years and um, in a community that I think is like relatively dysfunctional in many ways, but the gender dynamics were really pretty remarkable in that community because it was like, you know, men were getting to like actually spend time with their children instead of being expected to be like the breadwinner and off doing something separate from their family. Women didn't have to choose between spending time with their children and, um, developing their career skills. Uh, and you know, everybody was, um, it it leveled the playing field a lot in terms of the gender stuff. Um, and the same thing with class dynamics. I mean, that's another big reason. And it's one of the main motivations for the group that I'm in the process of starting here in Laramie, Wyoming is going to be an income sharing group. And we're basically doing that because of classism, because we think that a classless society would be a much more humane society than what we have right now, where there's vast um, wealth discrepancies and you know, your access to healthcare and a whole bunch of other stuff is like totally dependent on how much money you have. And we think that that is kind of a great societal evil. And so we are interested in actually flattening that out as well. Okay. Yeah. So that's the second one. Um, and the third one is sustainability. So, um, again, when you 
collectivize your income, it makes sense to be sharing a lot of resources as well. And, you know, if you have um, one kitchen, for instance, that's cooking all the food, like A, you had way fewer resources going into building one kitchen than you would have, say there's 20 like households that are part of the community, like building one kitchen is way more ecologically responsible than building 20 kitchens. Yep. And it takes way less fossil fuels to like prepare a meal for 60 people than it does for all of those different households to be preparing all of those different dinners. Uh, and so there's a lot of ways where, again, income sharing like really helps you um, because resource sharing is a no brainer. It also means that your ecological footprint drops pretty significantly. Um, and I profile in my book, I, there's a profile of Dancing Rabbit and there's also a profile of Twin Oaks community in Virginia that is an income sharing community and their ecological numbers are not as good at Dancing Rabbit as Dancing Rabbits, but they're pretty close and they haven't really tried that hard. They just share income. Okay. And, and when you say your book, you're talking about Together Resilient. Together Resilient, right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And you also mentioned you know that Twin Oaks isn't doing as well, if, you, if we can say it that way, as uh, Dancing Rabbit because you're actually seeing your outputs and you're measuring mm-hmm. things. You're studying yep. yourself and you want to know, are we actually meeting the ideals and the goals of the community itself? What uh, that First of all, that's awesome. Uh, uh, what are the other primary metrics if you were to live in an intentional community um, that you would evaluate yourself on of are we collectively mm-hmm. being the kind of people that we want to be? Yeah, well, first of all, I can express some a little bit of disappointment that more communities don't do that. I would love it if like half of the communities in the U.S. were actually measuring their ecological footprints and other things. And that's actually pretty unusual to be doing that. So let me just put a plug in to my fellow intentional communities folks to like measure your outputs. Yeah, Um, shout out to them. Yes, yes, please. Um, And so one of the other things is, you know, measuring happiness and measuring, um, you know, there's been a number of international studies that have been done that not only look at happiness, but also look at things like, um, your sense of having meaning in your life. And um, in both of those cases, intentional communities actually score really, really high. Um, One of the studies that was done about general happiness, that was an international study found that the only people happier than women living in intentional communities are Finnish women, or sorry, Norwegian women who uh, either have just given birth or are pregnant. And that's it. Those are the only happier people in the world that have been studied, you know, with this one study. And they've studied lots of different, you know, college students in Japan and college students in the U.S. and like people in Europe. I mean, like they've studied lots of different populations and women in intentional communities are some of the happiest people in the world. Uh, And that's true at Dancing Rabbit, too, that the, um, you know, 88 percent of people at Dancing Rabbit say that it's a good or very good place to live, which is about the same numbers that Seattle gets when people ask that question in Seattle. Well, as you're starting this new intentional community in Laramie, Wyoming, what are some of the ways that you feel like you can do better than what you've seen in the past? Or you can take a different approach or maybe a a different wrinkle towards Mm -hmm. how it started, how uh, it's maintained, the types of conversations that are facilitated within the community. What are you planning on doing differently, whether it's you know for a fact this is a better way to do it, or maybe it's just some grand experiment that you can't wait Mm. to find out what's going to happen if we do this? 
Oh boy, that is a really juicy question. I well, first of all, I can say that I I don't think that we're doing much that is entirely unique. Like I think intentional communities have been around for centuries and probably just about any experiment you could think of has been tried at some point. Um, so there's, there's not a lot of territory there to be like truly unique and new, um, which I don't mind. I'm happy to not be reinventing the wheel. Um, we, I mean, we are doing income sharing for the reasons that I've already talked about. Um, we're also taking it a little bit further than, than most income sharing groups do and that we're actually doing, uh, planning on doing debt sharing as well. Um, which is a really big deal. You know, most Americans are in debt, um, often really significant debt. And one of the blockages to people moving into community oftentimes is that they have too much debt to be able to actually make that work. And so we're planning on trying that experiment and seeing like how much further we can take that um, so that we're really taking care of people sort of where where they come into the process, kind of meeting them where they're at um, a little bit more. And so I think that's one thing that we're doing that's pushing that envelope a little bit. Um, I think, you know, partly because I talk about it sort of nonstop, like I think we're very aware that we're a culture change experiment with this group and a lot of intentional communities don't start there. Um, you know, they're looking for, I want a really great neighborhood to raise my kids, but they're not necessarily getting like, Oh, to really deeply be cooperative, I'm going to have to be a different kind of human being in order to pull that off. And that's going to involve personal growth and it's going to involve uh, social and cultural change work in the process. Um, so I think those two things that we're also taking a really strong stand around, um, you know, being an anti-oppression uh, community, which is not something that most communities put that much attention on, particularly in the early days. And so that's something that's really important to us. Hi. So many questions. <laughs> so many questions. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but I don't have the time, and neither do you right now. Darn it. Ugh. Time. My nemesis <laughs> at times. Oh, well, you know what? I, I per, Perhaps we'll continue this conversation in one way or another, but I want to make sure that you have an opportunity, because I've been asking a lot of questions, and maybe there's something that you're like, but Joel, but Joel, we didn't talk about this. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like people to know? Well, we haven't talk, talked nearly as much about the, um, the sort of social dynamics end of things uh, as I often do in interviews. And I think that's a big, um, you know, big focus to what I do. And so, you know, we've talked about the compassion thing and the necessity of being able to cooperate. And uh, one of the things that I do is I'm a consensus trainer, among other things, and um, really looking at how we make decisions where there, there's ways that like voting, which is sort of held up as like, this is the ultimate expression of democracy, um, which I think is a little crazy. But, you know, voting has a tendency to put you in a place where you end up with camps in your organizations. And, you know, we see it with the Democrats and Republicans, and you see those same things get replicated, even on the very small scale of an intentional community. Um, because really, all you have to do is like get enough votes to pass the thing, and then you don't actually have to care beyond that. And, you know, you can have really, really, really divisive dynamics and still get what you want, at least a chunk of the time. So one of the things that I'm all about is like helping people sort of move past that divisiveness and move into a place where we are really deeply obligated to listen to each other and to be in deep dialogue and to be changed by each other in the process of making decisions 
And when you come at decision-making from that place, there's a whole lot of ripples that happen in your, um, your immediate relationships and your, just sort of the field of the community that you're creating with each other is really different. Yeah. And so I just want to put a plug in for that, that I think a lot of social change organizations of all sorts fall apart because we just don't know how to get along. And so I think that skills building is really, really essential. Where would you send people to learn more about uh, facilitating conversations around finding consensus? Well, there's a number of practitioners around the U.S. who do really good training stuff. Um, And so I'll just do a shout out to one of those trainers, which is a woman named Tree Bresson, who's on the West Coast. And I think Tree is... um, I think Tree gets the same sort of cultural stuff that I get and does training from a similar place. Um, I also do training all over the country, although I prefer being in the Midwest and the mountain states and not traveling too far to do that. Um, And then the Fellowship for Intentional Community, which is an organization that works with all different kinds of intentional communities, um, has an online bookstore. And um, if you go to the ic.org, ic.org website, um, you can get to the bookstore there. And there's a number of books. And there's one um, quirky, old, originally published, I think, in the 1970s book called Building United Judgment that is a really interesting guide to sort of starting to wrap your head around consensus in particular. Um, so I would recommend that book as an interesting starting place. Cool. I will link to everything I can in the show notes. I would like to link to more. I would like to link to you, um, your books, and what you're up to. Where would you like people to go to learn more about you and the awesome work that you're doing? Mm, Thanks. Um, So so that same bookstore at the ic.org website um, has my book, Together Resilient. um, And you can also get it through Chelsea Green Publishers, which is the distributor for the book. Um, so two websites, one is, um, my own personal website, which is just sort of, um, has just kind of gotten a reboot and isn't really fully fleshed out yet, but that website is just myequay.org. So it's M-A-I-K-W-E. Oh, sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Um, W-E dot O-R-G. Um, yeah. You're spelling your name like I am too. Zeslowski. That's Z as in zebra, (laughs) A-S as in Sam. Right. So, okay. Myequay.org. Yep. Myequay.org. Um, and there'll be more on that website in the coming weeks. And then, um, my husband and I are actually in the process of launching a new organization called Cooperative Revolution. And we don't have the website up yet, but we will, I'm hoping in just like in another month or so, and that's going to be at coopRevolution.us. So um, look for that starting like the, the tail end of 2017. Um, yeah. So that's me. Okay. Yeah. From dancing rabbit to lots of rabbit holes for people to <laughs> go explore more. I, I like it. Uh, a very sea-themed and rabbit-themed conversation. Nice. Thank you for it, Mike Way. This has been wonderful. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. All right. Who knew that sustainability, social dynamics, and intentional communities could look the way Mike Way experiences them? I guess you and I both do now. You can find links to all the stuff we spoke about, topic timestamps, takeaways, and more grooviness in the show notes at joelzeslowski.com slash SASM121. You'll also see information in the show notes about how to support me, this show, and our community at joelzeslowski.com slash support. I'd like to take a moment to remind you once again that you aren't just a statistic, a listener, or a downloader. 
You are part of this community and what we're co-creating together, and I value you. Word up to that, right? You've just listened to the Smart and Simple Matters podcast with Joel Zaslavsky. Now go simplify something. Hug someone or get your sexy spreadsheet on.